日本史学習に最高にもってこいのサイトサムライアーカイブスポッドキャストへようこそ美しい自然にあふれてる縄文時代から波乱万丈な幕末まで全時代を網羅して日本史の隅から隅まで一緒に語り合いましょうでは早速日本史の世界へ Hey everyone, welcome back to the Samurai Archives podcast. This is Chris, and today we'll be continuing our discussion on the Russian incursions into the Kuril Island chain during the Edo period. And before we get started, I'd just like to remind everyone to please rate us on iTunes if that's where you're listening. Every little rating boosts our visibility, which is much appreciated. And if you'd like to support the podcast, please be sure to check out the Samurai Archives bookstore and the Samurai Archives t shirt shop. Which also has other paraphernalia, not just t shirts. And if you shop on Amazon.com, please shop via our link, all of which is available on the podcast blog site, which is samuraipodcast.com. So, with that, we will continue our discussion on the barbarians at the northern gates, Russian incursions during the Edo period. Also, around the mid 18th century, the Russians were, I guess, mostly trappers and traders were. Kind of attacking and killing Karelians、uh, here and there, burning villages, just wreaking havoc. And one guy in particular,、uh, one leader in particular, got so notorious for it that finally the Russians themselves basically just,、uh, I guess, captured him and executed him. But,、uh, you know, lots of interesting stories about、uh, the Karelians would,、uh, you know, they, they would get together and basically create war parties and go out hunting Russians. And、uh, they, they'd meet up with Russians and Even use trickery. They'd, they'd say, oh, let's, let's、uh, you know, get together, have a big meal, and they'd invite them to the village, and they'd have a big feast, and then basically just spear everyone to death after the feast. Interesting. I suppose, I suppose that's a technique. Yeah, the, I guess the, the Russians were quite a menace,、uh, at least not the, not the Russians per se, but the, the trappers and the traders in that area who were just kind of、uh, willy nilly killing and, and robbing the, the Kuril Islanders. So the, they, they basically took their revenge on them, and then. The Russian government, not wanting to, I guess, have their name involved with that kind of thing, basically had the guy executed. And t h、uh, that, that kind of that was that. It was basically in the, in the 1750s, 60s, 70s, in that area there is when, is when a lot of this was going down. There's a lot of trouble in the Karelian Islands or the Karel chain. But、uh, there was another expedition、uh, that, that went. Basically, there was a lot of, of expeditions, and they kind of all ended. Pretty similarly. This one、uh, got all the way down to Kunashiri, which is the island just off the coast of Hokkaido. And they actually,、right. they actually ran into、uh, a Japanese、uh, merchant ship and talked to them and basically said, okay, let's meet here in whatever amount of time it was, a few months or what have you, and we'll, we'll bring stuff to trade. And、uh, you check with your government, see, you know, see what they can do for us, and this and that. And they came back, and eventually the Japanese ship showed up and said,、uh, Yeah, we're not allowed to trade with you. So,、uh, and we're, in fact, we're not allowed to talk to you. So don't come back. And if you need anything, go through the hairy Karelians. Right, right. So th- there, was a, there was a lot of that. Basically,、uh, they said,、uh, you know, if you need anything up here, just go through the, the Karelians. But if you want to try to deal with Japan, go, go right to Nagasaki. That was pretty much everyone's answer. Go to Nagasaki. Which, you know, that, you know as, as we'll see, that really doesn't accomplish anything either. But、uh, I, I think that's just their go to excuse when, when Russians show up. is... You need to go to Nagasaki. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, that's the approved outlet for foreign trade, so to speak. And even though it was limited to, you know, the Dutch for the most part,、uh, so anyone outside of that area is going to use that as a, 
well, you know, I mean, it's a way to say that, uh, well, we're not the ones rejecting you. Just go to Nagasaki. And then, you know, they don't have to handle them because they'll, you know, they'll deal with it at Nagasaki and the local people don't have to deal with it. Yeah. So that's, that's basically, uh, the, the, the 18th century was a lot of basically Russia kind of trying to map out the area, trying to find Japan. And then when they finally located Japan, uh, trying to open relations with it. Although, you know, ironically, I think even, even after they kind of located Japan, they, they continually were trying to reach Japan via the Korea Islands. Um, I don't think it was until the 19th century where they kind of realized they could actually just sail straight there from the Russian mainland. Right. But to kind of sum up what we've done, so, gone through so far, uh, you know, we have uh, Kazarevsky in 1711 started his little abortive trip down the Kurel Island chain, didn't get very far, really wasn't very effective. Uh, Martin Spanberg and William Walton's sort of strange trip to Japan in the, the 1730s and maybe early 1740s. And then uh, all the sort of the, the trappers and the traders causing trouble in the Creole Island chains for a couple decades. And then uh, Benyovsky, the, uh, I still don't even really know how to, you know, how to, how to quantify that guy. I don't know if he's a, if he's just a criminal or if he's a, he's a, if he, he was a, a good guy who was just sort of an anti-hero or if he's, or what his, his thing was. I, don't, I really don't know what his thing was, but, uh, right, right. Just an interesting guy. I'll, I'll have to sort of see if I can look up, look up more about him. But, uh, if anyone wants to Google him, I, I've seen his name spelled a few different ways, but in a lot of the articles, it's B-N-Y-O-V-S-Z-K-Y. But, uh, he basically in the 1770s kind of tried to turn Japan against Russia and caused a stir in Japan. Uh, then we have the uh, the Laxman expedition in 1793, which we talked about, where Daikokuya Kodayu, the uh, Japanese translator, went with Laxman to Japan, and he was, he, from what I could tell, Laxman was treated very well. He was treated uh, like a guest of the shogunate, basically, and uh, was treated very well. Uh, but uh, of course, you know, he was uh, stonewalled and eventually told just to leave. And he did, but he did get that letter, which he he thought meant something, or you know, I, I don't know if he. If he really knew what the letter said and, and just was like, well, I, I went all this way and I came all the way back. I'm not going to, why, why rock the boat? Here's this piece of paper I got. And it, it, hey, look, we can go back to Japan. So I don't know. I don't know if he really knew what was right. going on or not. But um, basically, when he got back, like I said, Catherine II really wasn't all that interested in trade with Japan. So that letter just kind of sat around. And uh, somehow it, it fell into Nikolai Petrovich Rezanov's hands. Uh, who decided that he was going to be the one to use that to open Japan about a decade later in 1804. Uh, and he, we, we did touch on this guy a little bit, if I remember correctly, in our podcast about the uh, coastal defenses of Nagasaki. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, but uh, he basically used the certificate that he got by Laxman to, to get into the uh, harbor. And uh, he, he was actually treated pretty horribly. Uh, he, was, he got the runaround for six months. Con he was confined to the ship, and I guess people were getting sick on the ship. And and after months and months of confinement, they were given like a a, a piece of land about the size of a tennis court to kind of walk around on, <laughs> kind of like almost like in uh, you know when you get your yard time in jail or something. Right. And, uh, and after after basically six months of stonewalling and really accomplishing nothing, he was he was forced to leave. And I guess he was kind of there were a lot of illness because of that. I guess scurvy was one of the problems and. I think eventually, well, he, he did eventually die somewhat soon thereafter, and it probably had something to do with six months cooped up on a ship. It wouldn't surprise me. But uh, 
the uh, the the issue the 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 thing about uh, Rezanov isn't so much w- what he did in Japan; it's what he did after he left Japan that kind of s- really caused a problem for all sailors who washed up in Japan or anyone else who tried to visit Japan in, in the 19th century. Basically, he uh, he he worked for the Russo-American Company, which I guess, or or actually, I guess he was sort of the the beneficiary of the company. I guess his wife was the daughter of the owner or something along those lines, and so. He would have benefited extremely from opening trade with Japan, and so he was obviously very unhappy when Japan didn't open for him. So he basically told these two uh, young naval officers uh, by the name of Nikolai Kvastov and Gavril Davidov to uh, basically avenge his treatment. He got them warships and told them to go wreak havoc on Japanese shores. <laughs> right, right. And so they they uh, they didn't actually attack. Japan itself, Japan proper. You know, ironically, they didn't go to Nagasaki and try to cause trouble there. Um, they basically attacked and burned Japanese settlements in on the islands of Etorofu, Rishiri, and Sakhalin, and also attacked a Matsumai outpost. And uh, there was also a funny story. I think it was on Matsumai where they basically attacked one of the outposts, and then when they came back, everyone was gone. So a bunch of sailors started getting drunk on sake. And then when they went back to the ship, they they didn't realize till later they'd left two guys there who passed out drunk, and they were captured by the Japanese and beheaded. And their oh yeah 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 I remember reading that. <laughs> yeah, their their heads like, were sent to Edo. What? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, uh, so they were basically just causing mayhem. They were burning villages and causing problems throughout uh, northern the area in northern Japan. And uh, the shogun eventually did uh, send troops up there to sort of reinforce uh, Japan. And there really wasn't anything conclusive. I think they basically just kind of gave up and left after burning various villages and attacking some outposts and this and that. They kind of just were like, okay, we did what we needed to do. And uh, one of the articles mentions that it was probably because they were looking for uh, some sort of glorious assignment, you know, in the West, in, in you know, the war fields of the West rather than these this sort of Siberian outposts. So that's probably why they did what they did. And, you know, they, they didn't really seem invested in, you know, causing true mayhem. They just kind of went in and killed some people, captured some people, burned some stuff, and basically left. And, uh, yeah, it, it did, uh, this caused an, an uproar in Japan that basically changed the Japanese attitude toward, towards Russia for the next century. It soured it at best, you know, whereas before Russian ships would pull up to Japan and get good treatment and then say, well, you're not aware of our laws, and so we'll let you go this time, you know, just kind of a token thing. After, after that, things got pretty bad for the Russians. Yeah, it, it pretty pretty much ended any... Thing like that, and then you know it goes back to what I was talking about before with, you know, this setting up then future decades of the Russians are a threat and we need to be worried about them, you know, which which eventually ends up, uh, you know, as Japan uh, after the Meiji period, you know, becomes uh, interested in building its own continental empire and so on and so forth, you know, you see them. I mean, the the Russians are their primary competition that they uh, try to, you know, fight against and uh, ends up in the Russo-Japanese War uh, in the 1904-05. And, and then, you know, this is where we see, like, from 1855, originally the there, there was a dividing line about halfway through the Kuril Islands uh, and... Uh, the southern half of Sakhalin, and then in 1875, there's another treaty uh, that gives the entire island of Sakhalin to the Russians, uh, but also but gives the uh, you know the, the Japanese a little bit more of the Kurils, 
And then, you know, after 1904-05, when the Japanese beat the Russians in the, in the, uh, in the war, um, you have even more Japanese get ha- that, the bottom half of the Sakhalin back. And then also, you know, get all of the Kuril Islands all the way up to Kamchatka. So, you know, these are the, this borderline is fluctuating depending on the fortunes of conquest and, and, and war and, um, you know, eventually until 1945 when the Japanese are defeated in World War II and the Russians say, hey, thank you, we'll take all this back again. Uh, and, and that's where we currently stand. And, uh, you know, I mean, even as, as late as now, you know, 2011, there was big controversy between Russia and Japan about, um, you know, the northern territories, as the Japanese call it, the, the four islands that, uh, that they still lay claim to. Uh, and that the Russians refused to give back. Uh, and, and this is, this is why World War II still to the, to the, to the point of, you know, still today, there's back and forth between, uh, Russia and Japan over it. And, you know, Russian President uh, Medvedev, uh, was quoted in 2010 and 2011 as, uh, you know, calling for increased military uh, present Russian military presence in the Kuril Islands uh, as defense against the the Japanese uh, trying to you know possibly retake them uh, and he you know visited uh, Kunishiri or Kunishir uh, depending on whether you're saying it in Japanese or Russian uh, in November of 2010 uh, which was taken as a big diplomatic affront to the uh, to the Japanese. Uh, so much so that, uh, you know, the prime minister at the time, uh, Naoto Khan, recalled the ambassador from Moscow. You know, I, I mean, this is, it, it doesn't quite get the same press as the Senkaku Islands debate between Japan and China, primarily because, you know, it's not sitting on top of oil like the Senkakus are. Plus, you know, the Chinese are a little bit more dramatic about things. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I mean, you know, 2011, Medvedev is calling for, Putting more Russian troops uh, into the into the Kuril Islands, you know, and even as as recently as uh, February of 2013, on the seventh, you know, Russian jets flew over Japanese uh, airspace uh, just north, you know, in the waterway, but just north of the island of Hokkaido, and the Japanese air self defense force, uh, you know, scrambled in response and. And, and so on and, and so forth. And of course, the big argument from between the Russians and the, and the Japanese is, you know, well, the Russians say they didn't enter Japanese airspace. The Japanese say they did and, and so on and so forth. So you see, well, well, it's not quite doesn't quite get the same press as as uh, the Senkakus, like I said, you know, there is potential for this being a a flashpoint. Well, you know, the and, main the main difference, too, is that the uh, the Senkakus and Dokdo, that's that's just that's that's debatable to an extent whereas you know if you look at the Shimoda treaty and you know basically who who is doing what where uh the Japanese and the Russians had basically agreed early on that uh you know Kunashir, Shikotan, Itarup, those three islands just off the coast of Hokkaido were you know Japanese territory and uh, you know at the end of World War 2 I think Russia was just like uh this oops, sorry spoils of war <laughs> so I, I think it's pretty clear pretty much it's, it's, I, I mean it, it's <laughs> Yeah, it's pretty obvious that there's no in this particular um, case it's, it's legitimate clear, territorial yeah. claim that far down the cruel chain. 
uh, by the Russians. I mean, these are... And the Russians don't even try to justify it, except that, uh, ooh, we won the war. It's ours. Sorry. Well, <laughs> well, and, and I mean, <laughs> you, you could point to the fact that, uh, you know, the Russians were trying to get uh, consent from the American uh, occupation leadership uh, and, you know, tried to bully their way into conducting the occupation of, of Hokkaido and dividing Japan, much like Korea had been divided and, and like, um, like Germany was divided uh, in the immediate aftermath of World War II. Yeah, and that went uh, well for and, everyone who was on the Russian side of things in every situation. Yeah, uh, <laughs> absolutely, right? Um, and, you know, MacArthur basically said, go ahead and try it, and uh, we'll see we'll see how long it lasts. And, and the Russians backed down, you know, which was probably the smart move at the time. But, you know, I mean, they were trying to do the same thing. They were on every front of, of the you know, of, of the time immediately after uh, World War II ended, which was, you know, push their own control of everything they could. Uh, and so it's not surprising that, you know, they grabbed these islands and grabbed, uh, excuse me, as much as they could. It, it is, I mean, it's interesting that uh, it took 50 years for Japan and, and Russia to to. to to continue, you know, dialogue on it to the point, and and I'll, I'll be honest, I'm 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 trying to find something on it right now, but I, I can't I, I can't find uh, whether or not the I mean, for a long time, it was the case that Japan and Russia had not actually signed a treaty ending their hostilities in World War II. I can't find anything that says that they actually have because this was such a big sticking point between them. No, it didn't, as a matter of fact. Really? Um, the, the Russians did not sign the, the, the Treaty uh, of San Francisco. And, and to this day, um, I mean, at least in, since you know I, I was in Japan uh, in 2010, um, they had not signed a, an official – Treaty. I mean, you know, obviously they have diplomatic relations and, and the war is not continuing in that sense. It's not like a North Korea, South Korea thing. Um, but they have, they do not have an official treaty ending the war because of, of this point. Huh. And I'm looking at, at, at the developments right now and, and they're, you know, on online and, and there's, yeah, I mean, in 1956, they signed a, a joint, uh, you know, a, a Soviet-Japanese joint declaration, which ended the state of war in the Soviet Union, between the Soviet Union and Japan. Uh, this was in October of 56, which technically it still existed between the countries since uh, August 1945. The joint declaration did not settle the Kuril Islands dispute, resolution of which was postponed until the conclusion of a permanent peace treaty between the USSR and Japan. But yeah, no. Because they haven't settled that dispute, they they haven't actually, other than the 1956 you know joint declaration, there's no actual. We officially end, you know end everything and and so on and so forth. Um, 
It says the question of whether Etorofu and Kunishiri Islands are part of the Kurils. And, and this is the debate that the Japanese have is that, you know, they're actually part of Japan, not part of the Kurils. Uh, and whether it's covered by Article 2C of the Treaty of San Francisco remains one of the main outstanding issues in the Kuril Islands dispute. Um, yeah, so, you know, Japanese say, and have said at least since 1956 that they're actually part of Japan, not part of the Kurils, and Russia says, no, they're part of the Kurils, and therefore they're ours. Oh, so the justification isn't, we used to own this justification is, oh, we own the whole island chain, and since he's following the island chain, even though you may have had them at one point, that's what the treaty says, so we're taking them, I guess. Correct, because in the in the documents ending the World War II, uh, you know, specifically the, you know, uh, the, uh, the San Francisco Treaty, uh, yeah, Article 2C of the San Francisco Treaty signed in 51 states, Japan renounces all right, title, and claim to the Kuril Islands, as that portion of Sakhalin and the islands adjacent to it, over which Japan acquired sovereignty as a consequence of the Treaty of Portsmouth of 5 September 1905. Of course, that's the treaty that ended the Russo-Japanese War. Right. The U.S. State Department later clarified that the Habamai Islands and Shitokan are properly part of Hokkaido and that Japan is entitled to sovereignty over them. So... Yeah, and Britain and the United States agreed that territorial rights would not be granted to nations that did not sign the Treaty of San Francisco, and therefore the islands were not formally recognized as Soviet territory, since the Soviet Union did not sign the Treaty of San Francisco. So basically what happens is, you know, in that treaty, Japan renounces the right to the Kuril Islands, but the Russians did not sign that treaty, so therefore they have, you know, that treaty does not give them then the right to fill that gap that the Japanese have given it up and now it's Russian territory. It just says that the Japanese don't own it. It also I guess according to this later clarification says that Habomai and, Sh- and uh, Shikotan uh, are not part of the Kurils. They're part of Japan. Same, you know, the Japanese then later argue that it's the same thing. You know, Etorofu and Kunishiri or Iturop and Kunishir uh, are are Japanese as well, you know, that they fall under that same uh, definition. But doesn't Russia control Shikotan and the Habomai Islands? Yes. So basically, they're just they're just occupying it and not letting Correct. Japan take it. That's that's Correct. that's essentially the situation. They're they're just occupied by the Russians. Correct. With their statement being that, well, we own the Kuril Islands and these are part of the Kuril Islands. Um, you know, the U.S. side as of 1951 said that. Well, Habamai and, and uh, Shikotan are not part of the Kuril Islands. Uh, and Japan actually claims that neither are Kunishiri and Etorofu. Yeah, and then later on, so the, the, the Article 9 of the Joint Declaration signed by the Russians and the Japanese in 1956 says, USSR and Japan have agreed to continue after the establishment of blah, 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 concludes. Hereby, the USSR, in response to the desires of Japan and taking into consideration the interests of the Japanese state, agrees to hand over to Japan the Habomai and Shikotan Islands, provided the actual changing over to Japan of these islands will be carried out after the conclusion of a peace treaty. So the, the Soviets actually said, yeah, we'll, hand, we'll give these two back to you once we sign a peace treaty. Problem is, there has been no peace treaty signed. Uh, and they probably don't want to because they don't want to risk giving up uh, Kunishir. Right. That, that Interesting. Seems. Now, this reading further on, 
Yeah, it says that that um, you know Vladimir Putin, as late as 2006, um, you know, offered uh, to return Japan to you know Shikotan and Habomai if it if Japan would renounce the claim to Kunishini and Etorofu. Uh and Japan said no. Well, you know, the weird thing about uh, Kunishiro or Kunishiri is that it's it's like what. 10 miles off the coast of Hokkaido. You, you drive the coastal uh, highway on the sort of the, the east coast of Hokkaido, you can see it. It's just right there. Right. It's interesting. You know, you're, you're basically looking at Russian territory. But, um, yeah, you know, the really interesting thing to me is that it's, it's a totally different situation than the issues with the Senkaku Islands and Dokdo, which are kind of like sort of steeped in this, this weird cultural and historical dispute, whereas... You know, the, with the Russians, it's it's purely political, and it's purely, or or it's it's pretty clear cut. You know, it's it's just political machinations, you know, in play, and it's it's pretty clear. You can you can really look at it and kind of figure out what's going on. But you know, like Dokdo and Senkaku, I, that's you know that that's kind of like flip a coin. You know, I mean, you can you can justify it either way. It's really not all that clear. But you know, the Kuril Island chain is is sort of a different situation. It's actually pretty interesting. Especially, I didn't right. realize I, that it's. Uh, I would I, actually say, I mean, with the you know the Senkakus have heated up uh, recently, uh, of course, but I, I would actually say out of all of them, the one that the Japanese care the most about is the you know Kunishiri, Etorofu, Habomai, and Shikotan, uh, you know, getting those back from the Russians. If, if you if you asked your average Japanese on the street. Those are more important to them historically than the Senkakus or or uh, Takashima. Well, because uh, the 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 average Japanese is is way more way more moderate than the right wing nutcases that are all up in arms over Dokdo and Senkaku. So yeah, absolutely. But um, you know, to kind of get back, or I, I guess as a follow up to the the issues, I, I know we got to the twentieth twentieth century, but or even twenty first now. With this, but after Rezanov sent his his two little jackals to uh, wreak havoc in you know northern Japan, you know that of course changed everything for the next hundred years uh, as far as how Japan viewed Russia. But uh, Russia did send one last uh, group to uh, Nagasaki in 1811, and actually that was the last pe- the last trip until uh, you know things started heating up in the Bakumatsu era in the you know 1850s 1860s. But uh, Vasily Golovnin in 1811 uh, basically went to Japan to sort of, uh, you know, basically, again, an, a perfectly peaceful delegation to try to open trade with Japan. And basically the Japanese captured him and paraded him around Japan in a cage, which was apparently not tall enough for him to stand and also not wide enough for him to sit. So he was basically paraded around the country in a cage in an extremely uncomfortable position, uh, mistreated and jailed for two full years before being sent back to Russia. Uh, where you know he was able to capitalize on that with his famous book Memoirs of a Captivity in Japan, which was a three-volume encyclopedia of Japan. Interesting enough, uh, apparently there was a lot of uh, sort of positive aspects of Japan that he picked up while he was being mistreated. But I, 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 I was kind of under the impression that a lot of that was swept under the rug a little bit because they wanted it to be a little bit more I don't, I don't know interesting and more you know this this is the this is how the Japanese really are type type thing. But uh, right, right. Basically, after after that happened to him, that, that was pretty much it. Russia was like, I, I don't know if things were, you know, I, I don't know Russian history, so I don't know if it was like, screw that, we don't need this anymore, or if just things politically changed direction, they just lost interest in Japan. I'm not really sure what happened there, but... Uh
I think they're, they they kind of had their own problems with, uh, you know, Napoleon and all that stuff going on. Oh, uh, yeah, that that would that would explain it. But uh, yeah, they, they you know they they did start pushing in the 1850s, 1860s. The funny thing is, I I, I vaguely remember the uh, the the Americans were basically like, you know, you can sign a treaty with us now. Or you can sign a treaty with the Russians when they come knocking. You know they're not gonna they're not gonna be come with uh come bearing gifts. They'll come bearing guns. So it'd be a good idea for you to sign with us rather than wait for the Russians to come knocking. I, I think that was kind of their Certainly. that was the the tipping point for the Japanese where they were like, okay, that's we're 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 stuck. <laughs> Better sign with the Americans. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Lesser lesser of multiple evils. Certainly. Yeah. yeah all in all, uh, interesting. Uh, you know the the you know 18th century is the, the the dead center of the the Edo period, which is pure you know stuff that we're not terribly interested in. But if you kind of look look at the big picture outside of of you know Edo, the streets of Edo, <laughs> there actually was a lot of interesting things going on. I mean, I I had never prior to maybe uh, a year ago, maybe two years ago, I, I hadn't even heard of of the Russian in, in you know the Russians trying to break into Japan in the the uh, 18th century. I had, I, I really had no idea how much activity was really happening in that area. Right, right. Yeah, you know, I, I mean, it's it's um, it's interesting. I mean, part of it is is you know, it's it's hard because uh, um, for me primarily, I, I look at uh, you know military history and and large scale warfare. And there's not a whole lot of that that you see, you know, in the Edo period. But what you do see from a military perspective is a lot of, you know, the the beginnings of national politics and policy. And and so like when we did the podcast on Nagasaki port defense, you know, that was something that I hadn't really considered before. Uh, but when you when you you look at it, it's like the nascent stages of Japan putting together national defense. Uh, you know, against outside threat, and then how this, you know, the Russian incursions, and and then later on, you know, they're dealing with Perry and the Americans. Um, that that whole that whole process is, and and how it then spills over into the Bakumatsu, and then and then the early Meiji state, and how they build a defense mechanism it is really interesting. Yeah, the uh, the sort of the the external politics. I mean, like like Travis has talked about numerous times, and like we've talked about on previous podcasts. Even though Japan was you know Sakoku and considered a closed country, it was only clo- it was closed in in it, basically it was closed if you were just an average Japanese person, and right. you know it it and it was closed as much as a country can be closed, you know, in that sen- in that that those centuries where people are riding around on ships and such, but. There, there was a lot going on. There was, there was international trade happening. There was these Russian incursions. There was shipwrecked sailors. There were Japanese who were being sent to Russia, England. Uh, you know, all not sent, but you know, ending up there <laughs> for the most part, the, right. because they were shipwrecked and, and rescued by someone or what have you. So there was, there was a lot of activity immediate in the, you know, immediately surrounding Japan and in regards to Japan. Uh, the shogunate just didn't want to admit it. I think is, is the, the heart of the matter. They they were basically willfully ignorant about what was actually going on. They just, you know, out of sight, out of mind. They, as long as it wasn't affecting them, and as long as it wasn't affecting the attitude of the citizens, then 
you know, they really didn't care. And as long as they could continue to basically just ignore it, and anyone, anytime anyone showed up, as long as they could say, sorry, we aren't interested, go away, and as long as the foreigners kept going away, then, uh, you know, status quo, they really didn't care. But there really was a lot going on. It's just a matter of actually, you know, finding out about it. Because, you know, the, the people who are interested in the Edo period are 99% of the time they're focused on the culture, the art, the which, you know, perfectly valid. And, and the you know, the there was a lot going on culturally. It was a huge period in Japanese history culturally. But, uh, you know, they're really not looking at international relations. They're not looking at what was going on outside Japan, Japan in regards to Japan. They were just looking at, you know, culture. Very little uh, political, you know, external politics, that kind of thing. So it's kind of interesting to, to look at these sort of things because it's it's things that really aren't looked at all that much. And I'll post links to some of the articles, but, uh, you know, as Nate mentioned, a lot of these uh, articles were written right after the end of World War II, you know, particularly because of what was to come, but not not a lot after that, which I'm not really sure why. It's it's actually really interesting. Uh, I think uh, there, there, are, there are articles here and there, but for the most part, since it's it's not necessarily Japan focused and it's on such a periphery for Russia that probably uh, I'm guessing Russian scholars really don't <laughs> look too much at it. So it's sort of at a weird position. It's it's the, it's just the periphery of two countries that you know really didn't have any official relations until a century after all this happened. Right. Yeah. Certainly. It's uh, it's it's interesting to to look at the scholarship of it and kind of where. That I mean, even from a Western perspective, with the Western authors writing these articles in the, the 19, you know, 40s and, and early 50s, I mean, uh, from an American perspective, they're they're also trying to figure out, hey, you know, how can we, how can we justify not letting, you know, or, or arguing against uh, the the Russians, the the Reds, the Commies, uh, getting their fingers on these places. Uh, so it, it's just interesting, you know, looking at the dates of some of the stuff that we were looking at for this one and going, hmm, okay, well, certainly, you know, there's there's a, you know, it's like we've always talked about. There's there's nothing that gets written that doesn't have a slant or a viewpoint. It's just understanding what it is and um, and and where it, it's coming from. So of course, there's interest on the American side uh, for. You know, coming up with justifications, or or at least understanding the justifications on either side of this argument, uh, that uh, well, it's actually Japanese territory. Well, it's actually you know, Russian territory. Whatever. So. Yeah, and uh, for the record, I'll, I'll mention the two articles. I'll also put them on the links for the uh, you know on the podcast website, uh, samuraipodcast dot com. But uh, the. Uh, the most concise uh, article, and it's a lot shorter, is Russia's Attempts to Open Japan by Harry Emerson Wilds uh, from the Russian Review, published in, uh, yeah, like you said, autumn 1945. And then the longer and a lot more detailed article, which basically covers the same the same century, the uh, 18th century, and into the a little bit into the 19th century, was Early Russo-Japanese Relations by George Alexander Lenson from the Far Eastern Quarterly, uh, published November 1950. Uh, that one's uh, that one goes into a lot of detail, and uh, it's uh, just uh, that article alone is is really interesting. But uh, you know, when you start to read uh, these various articles and kind of put everything together, it paints a really interesting picture of what was going on in in you know international relations with Japan in the uh, 18th century. 
and the Russians were really active in it, which, you know, again, I've said it like three times, but I, it was something I really wasn't aware of until somewhat recently. Right, right. All right, and that's a wrap for our part two of our talk on the Russian incursions into the Kuril Island chains during the Edo period. If you have any comments, please send them along to samuraipodcast at gmail.com or go to our Facebook page. Just search Samurai Archives. You can't miss it. Please go over there, like us, and all that. You can also follow us on Twitter at Samurai Archives. And if you're listening through iTunes, be sure to give us a rating. And if you're interested in helping out the podcast, please check out the Samurai Archives bookstore and the t-shirt shop. All these links are available at SamuraiPodcast.com. And also, if you shop on Amazon.com, please shop via our link. We'll get a little kickback to help pay for the podcast. So that's it for another episode of the Samurai Archives podcast. This was Chris with Nate. Thank you for listening.